I trust you're all ready for the big day on Thursday. And uh, got all your food ready or getting it ready. And pray you have a blessed time with friends and family, hopefully, and safe. But we've been, as Ken said, we've been going through some uh, messages on gratitude on Wednesday nights, and they're on the app, and then also on Sundays, we've just been looking at uh, Thanksgiving for what it really matters, and we've been looking at Colossians chapter 1, so you can turn there in your Bibles, Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to be focusing primarily on verses 12 to 14, and that's what I'll uh, be reading for you. So why don't we stand in honor of God's Word this morning, and then um, we'll read our text, and then we'll uh, pray and have our time in the Word. Father, uh, so he, we turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, and it says, Giving thanks to the Father, Paul writes, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would bless it to our hearts now. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So if you missed last week, you probably want to get that uh, message. And uh, you can go on the app to get that. But um, uh, we gave you a little background on the letter and the city and the, the author last week. And we're talking about thanksgiving for what really matters. And we're called upon to be thankful. And we covered that last week in many different places. Uh, one scripture pops out to me, 2 Corinthians 9, uh, 15, where it says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable what gift, the gift of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, primarily the gift of salvation in Christ. And we're called to do that. And we looked at a couple things that we can thank God for. We can thank God for who he is, first of all. Psalm uh, 30, verse 4 says, Sings praise to the Lord. You, his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Uh, we can also thank God for his nearness. In Psalm 75, verse 1, it says, We give thanks to thee, O God. We give thanks for thy name is near. We don't serve a God who's distant in any way. Uh, and then in First Timothy, Paul says, Thank you for the opportunity to serve. And so we, we looked at those various things last, last week. But we're called to give thanks to God in everything Thessalonians tells us, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And so it doesn't say give thanks to God for the good things. <laughs> it doesn't say to give thanks to God for all the blessings, but it says for everything, the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever. That's what we're to give thanks for. And so we've kind of summed that up as the idea of mostly the, the, the greatest thing that a believer should be thankful for is what? Is their salvation, right? The idea that God saved us when we were aliens, when we were sinners, when we were steeped and stuck in our sin. God reached down and gloriously caused us to be born again. He saved us by his grace. And that's why constantly Paul is referring to thanksgiving in all of his letters um, thanksgiving for our salvation. And uh, we, we looked last week at um, a couple different things, but overall you could, you could kind of sum it up as we, we just need to thank God that he saved us, that he saved us. And so last week we looked at inheritance, first of all. We, we kind of summed it up in three words. We should be thankful for our inheritance that we have 
because of our salvation through Christ. Um, And then today we'll be looking at deliverance and transference. And so this idea of inheritance, he says right there in our text in verse 12, it says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us, and we covered all this last week, so we're not going to go into all that, to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. So God has not only adopted us as his sons, but he also gave us an inheritance. An inheritance is a gift. It's not something you do anything for. You just have to receive the gift. And it says that he made us worthy of it. He qualified us because we we didn't deserve the gift in and of ourselves. Uh, God had to do a work in our hearts to give us that, that title of being qualified in Christ to enter into the right position to receive the blessings of God. It doesn't refer to our character. It doesn't refer to our nature. It refers to a title, to a right. And as believers of those who are in Christ, we have the right to certain blessings. Um, We don't deserve to share in the inheritance of the saints of light just in and of ourselves by our own character or by our nature because we would have been quickly disqualified. We were disqualified. But he uses the word here saying that God had to qualify us because we couldn't do it. And so how were we qualified? Well, we weren't qualified by our own works. We don't get qualified by coming to church or getting baptized or taking communion or saying our prayers before we eat. None of that stuff qualifies us. The only thing that qualifies us is God's willingness to save us and justify us, the Bible says. Big word basically just means to be declared righteous. Someone had to declare us righteous because we weren't righteous in and of ourselves. There was nothing righteous. The Bible says, for all have sinned, right, and fallen short of God's glory. So there's, there's no way that we could qualify ourselves. And so he declared us righteous. And you say, well, how did he do that? He took the righteousness of Christ, his own son, who came down to this earth. He took on a fleshly body. He lived for 30-some years. And then what did he do? He went to a cross. And even though he didn't deserve to be on the cross, because he didn't sin, he was perfect in every way. God took upon Christ, he put on Christ all of our sin. All of those who would ever trust in Christ, their sin was put upon Christ. It was imputed, you might say, to Christ. Well, that's fine if that happened, but, but we're still unrighteous. And so what happened to happen? God had to take the righteousness of Christ and give it to us. And that's exactly what the Bible says he did. And so he wanted, Paul is praying here that their eyes would be opened at, that they would see this incredible blessing of this inheritance. See, when a, when a man or a woman or a child or whoever puts their faith in Christ and in Christ alone, then the Bible says that's when he receives this inheritance. That's when he becomes a saint. You're not sainted because the church says you're a saint. The only way you can become a saint is if God makes you a saint. What's a saint? It's someone who's been made holy. Someone who's been separated solely onto God. 
Someone who's been set apart by faith. And so this inheritance belongs, it says, to the saints. And the saints are the people who know the truth of God and who live by the truth of God, right? Those are the saints. Those are the ones who get the inheritance. And that's why Paul is so filled with thanksgiving here, because he realizes there's no way he would get this inheritance otherwise. See, everybody doesn't get this inheritance. I mean, it's good news for those that receive it, right? The gift of salvation, you get this inheritance, you get all the blessings. But not everybody gets the inheritance. Just people who walk in the truth. Just people who walk in the light. Both intellectually and practice-wise. They behave as godly people. We're not perfect, right? Believers aren't perfect. We sin every day. But there should be a certain inclination to our lives of holiness. I mean, James, in, James in, in his little epistle, he says, faith without works is what? Dead. Right? You can't just say you have faith and you live like the devil. That doesn't work out. Faith without works is death. It's dead. And so... Praise God that when we're saved, we get this wonderful inheritance. But you know what? There's another side to this, unfortunately. There's an opposite side to the blessings of this inheritance. There's an opposite side of those who put their faith, their trust in the work of Christ and in Christ alone for salvation. And you can see that if you turn just back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because... As I said, not everyone will receive this inheritance. And this is unfortunate. But it's what it makes, it makes it so special. I mean, if you had a loved one die and they left you an inheritance, you would feel special. But if your loved one died and they left everybody the inheritance, well, you're just everybody. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, look at who will not inherit it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So in the mind of God, there are certain people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, do not be deceived. He continues, neither, and this is kind of including these people, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy people. Drunkards, revilers, swindlers. None of those will inherit the kingdom of God, the Bible says. But then, I love the next verse. Because Paul almost has to put this in there. Because he knew the Corinthians were prone to get a big head. <laughs> like a lot of religious people are. You know, they go to church, they do everything right. And they think, oh, they're so spiritual. Well, look at what Paul says next. He says, and such were some of you. <laughs> Isn't that great? We can never forget from whence we came. When we forget from where we came from, then we what? We grow self-righteous. We look down our noses at the world. Well, they don't know Christ. I can't have anything to do with them. That's not what the Bible calls us to do. We're called to be the what? The salt and the light of the world. We're not called to build a monastery and go up and live a holy life all by ourselves. So he says, such were some of you, Corinthians, and look at this, but you were what? You were washed, it says. Or from Pennsylvania, we say washed. (laughs) 
You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Guess what? They don't get the inheritance. The people that are not washed and sanctified and justified by Christ's name. There's no inheritance for those kind of people. In Galatians, Paul says in chapter 5, he gives another list. And none of these lists are all-inclusive. He's just listing out probably sins that were very um, prominent in their society. And you can tell how um, irrelevant it is what culture you live in. The Bible's always relevant. It's always relevant. You don't need to make the Scriptures relevant. Galatians chapter 6, verse or Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 20, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. In other words, they're pretty clear. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. He says, Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And, by the way, things like this. Just in case you're sitting there and you're feeling a little bit pretty good by the time he gets down to orgy, well, I've never done any of those. I guess I'm okay. No, anything like that. Any sin. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, look at that those who do such things, and what that means is practice such things as a way of life, as a way of life. We've all sinned in a myriad of ways, but that's not should not be the dictate of our life. It says, those who do such things, what's it say? Will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, it's the people of the light, the saints in the light, who receive this inheritance. Do you ever think about what this inheritance is? Okay, this is great to get an inheritance, but usually when you get an inheritance, you want to know what it is, right? Well, he tells us. He tells us in, in several places, actually, but you can just write this down. I don't even think it's in your notes. One thing the inheritance is, first of all, it's eternal life. That's the first thing. It's eternal life. The first thing we inherit is eternal life. And that's not talking about the length of life, but it's the kind of life. It's not ca- talking about the, the, the quantity of life. It's talking about a quality of life. It's a kind of living. It's God's life lived through me. That's what eternal life is. Over in Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, the text says this, And everyone who has left houses and brothers or sisters or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, this is Jesus speaking, if you do that for my name's sake, he says, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit, guess what it is, eternal life. See, the first thing, what we need to understand is that our inheritance is eternal life. It's a kind of existence. It's, it's Christ living in us. It's God living in in me. It's God moving through me, breathing, living his life through me. Um, 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, puts it this way. 1 John 5, 20. It says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true 
in his son, Jesus Christ. And then it says this, he is the true God and what? Eternal life. Christ is eternal life. Eternal life is Christ in me. It's a quality of existence. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, right? But Christ, what? Lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, that's so important to understand. You know, if you get saved and you try to live the Christian life by yourself, you're going to be miserable. If you think every day you've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps when you get out of bed and go, oh, I've got to go live the holy life now, you're going to be miserable. You can't do it in the flesh. You need to allow Christ and the Spirit of God to, to work through you. That's why he gifted you with this Holy Spirit. And that's the first thing that we inherit when we are made worthy. The first thing that God qualifies us to possess is eternal life. Remember the rich young ruler who came to the Lord? Remember what he, what he said? He said, what must I do, right, to inherit eternal life? What did he say? He meant, what, how do I get saved? That's what he was asking. Even over in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 25, there's another account, and this time it's a lawyer. In verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up, To put him to the test, speaking of Christ, he was going to test him. What is it with lawyers, anyway? They always think they're smarter than everybody else, you know. All this legal stuff, you got all these lawyers telling us everything. Who knows? But you know what? Lawyers don't have a real good standing in society, do they? They just don't. I mean, I'm sure there's some good lawyers, but it's like saying there's some good politicians, right? But it says a lawyer stood up, and what was his motivation to put him to the test? He was going to show Jesus something. And he said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, there's a problem here with this question. Theologically, guess what? You can't do anything to inherit eternal life. Not a single thing. It's a gift that needs to be received. That's what our theology teaches us, that God is sovereign in our salvation. And yet, I see our Lord at the same time in these verses show us, yes, God is sovereign over salvation, but guess what? He still includes you in the process. There's still something you have to do, not to earn the salvation, but you have to receive the gift. You have to, by faith, take a hold of it. And the reason I say that is look at how the story goes on here in in Luke 10, verse 26. He says, and he said, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, well, it says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength. Noteth, you shall love. You're going to do something here with all your mind. And then, by the way, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And what's interesting is Jesus' response here, because it really shows us two sides of this theology. Initially, it's kind of like, you can't do anything, pal, to get saved, right? But look at how he closes in verse 28. This is the Lord saying this to him. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. 
What's the next two words? Do this. And you will live. See, we can't get caught up on either side of that theological question. On one side, you have people who are, yes, God is sovereign. And you know what? You, you can do absolutely nothing to be saved. Theologically, that's true. I would agree with that 100%. But you know what? On this side of the same truth is the idea that you're not just saved in your sleep. You don't just go to bed and then wake up the next morning and go, wow, what happened to me? Gee, I don't even know. God just must have sovereignly saved me. He didn't share any information with me, nothing. I'm just, boom, it was God's will that I be saved. He chose me before the foundation of the world, so therefore I just got saved one day. I don't even know how it happened. I had no decision to make nothing. See, that's incorrect as well. But on the other side, you have people that say, no, no, no. Salvation is all your choice. You decide. It's totally up to you, 100%. As a matter of fact, they even go to the extent of pointing out scriptures where it says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. And they explain it away and they say, well, the only reason he chose us is because he knew you were going to choose him. So that makes the all-powerful God, the sovereign creator of the universe, subjective to me? That's, that's not good theology either. So we have to balance this. And I just find it so interesting that Jesus says, yeah, you, you got the right answer there. You know it intellectually. Now go do it. That's what the life of faith is. See, it's one thing to look at Christ and say, yep, he's a great teacher. I believe he's the Messiah. I believe he rose from the dead. He died on the cross. He did all those things. That's not going to save you. What do you have to do? You have to step out in faith. You have to trust him for your salvation. See, God chooses to make us worthy, to qualify us. But you have to receive that gift of salvation. And that's proven throughout the Gospels with Christ, by the way, if you, if you have any other thoughts of that. I mean, every time Jesus met someone who was one of his followers, what did he tell them to do? He told them to do something. What did he say? To Matthew, when he was working at his tax booth, making all sorts of money, he said, Matthew, you follow me. He said it to Peter. He said, all his disciples, you guys follow me. And what did they do? They made a choice. They, they, they took a step of faith and said, okay, this guy looks like the real deal. And we're going to forsake everything, our careers, our families, society, and we're going to follow Christ because we believe him to be the Messiah. So our inheritance is eternal life. And that's just kind of a, a neat thing because God has to qualify us so that eternal life, God living in us, so he could live in us. Because God cannot live in something that is unholy. That's why when we're saved, we're made a saint. We're made holy. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament uh, prophetic book of Ezekiel, he has a vision. And Israel started to desecrate the temple, if you remember. They had all this garbage on the walls, idols in the temple. They started bowing down to worship the sun, all sorts of things. These are God's people. Remember what God did? 
He said, you know what? I'm not going to take this. This is my temple. This is a holy place. I'm not going to put up with this. And as soon as those people started to pollute and desecrate the holy temple of God, what did he do? It says that he was gone. (laughs) He's out of there. You ever hear the word Ichabod? Right? Ichabod was written on Israel. In other words, the glory of God has departed from this place. God doesn't dwell in places that are not qualified. That's why it's so important as a pastor and as elders and those who are gatekeepers of any church that you guard it. You don't want it to become desecrated. Not that this building is holy. We don't believe that. But we we believe when we gather together as the saints, it's a holy gathering. It's a gathering that's set apart for God and God alone. And we have to realize this only comes by God's grace, by his mercy. I mean, think about it. God qualified you, a fallen sinner. He qualified me, a fallen sinner, to be the temple in which he dwells. Isn't that amazing? So we have eternal life. Secondly, the Bible says that we inherit the whole earth. (laughs) Wow. You might be looking around now going, yeah, I'll pass, but who knows, you know. Matthew 5, 5, remember? The Beatitudes, Jesus is speaking. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall what? Inherit the earth. The earth. Our inheritance is the whole earth. I mean, it's got future aspects to it. Someday Jesus is going to come and he's going to return and we're going to return with him in glory. Paul says in, in, in Colossians 3 even, and someday when Jesus returns, we're going to reign with him here on this earth. He's going to take over the earth. That's going to be exciting, is it not? The Lord says in Luke chapter 22... Verses 29 and 30, he says, And I will assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. Wow. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He said this to his disciples. And later on, the promise is extended to the whole church. In Revelation, it says that we're going to sit with him in his throne and rule over the earth. So we have this concept of it being future, but it has present day ramifications as well. I mean, there's so many Christians today that are, boy, they're just rolling their sleeves up, getting everything they can of this earth. You know, have you ever gone to a, a buffet where it's like all you can eat? You know, or maybe you went on a cruise or something. For the first couple of days, man, it's like on a cruise, you're just like, wow, this is nuts. Look at all this food, right? I told my grandson one time, I said, yeah, boy, it was, it was incredible. They just had so much food. Matter of fact, this one guy, he never came out of his cabin. He just kept on ordering room service. And 
And my grandson's like, really? I go, yeah. Was, but in the end, it was sad. I couldn't get him out. He grew so big. And it was, it was kidding, right? But he was like, really? I'm like, no, I'm just joking with you. But I mean, that's how you feel. You feel all this food and you just can't get enough of it. But you know what? By the sixth or seventh day on your cruise, you're like, yeah, you want to go eat? Nah, I don't know. Yeah, well, let's, let's go, go check it out. It's not a big deal anymore. You know, and, and here, when you realize you're going to inherit everything anyway, why worry about what you have right now? It kind of puts things in perspective. In the sense that we're Christians, one day we're going to have all this. It's going to be ours through Christ. Don't worry about it now. So we have eternal life. We have whole, the whole earth. But then also, the Bible says that we inherit all of the promises. All of the promises. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 to 12 says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And then it says this in verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience, what? Inherit the promises. Inherit the promises. The writer of Hebrews says that we're going to inherit these. What promises? All of them. All of them. When you come to Christ, you immediately inherit eternal life. You immediately have a future and even present day inheritance of the whole earth. But then you also have all the promises. I mean, there's nothing left outside of that. God gives us everything. That's why we speak of the sufficiency of Christ. Right? The more we know our Savior, the more we know God, the more we understand his word, the more sufficient we know that he is. So when we lack things, we don't worry. We don't fret. We realize, hey, you know what? God has a purpose in this. He will see me through. He will care for me. He is all sufficient. Owns the cattle on a thousand hill and the hills. <laughs> Not a problem for God. Or in Revelation chapter 21, remember John had this grand vision of the new heaven. You can read through that on your own. But he talks about the first heaven and passing away, and there's no more see all this stuff. And he says, well, there's this new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. And then in verse 7 he says, and the one who conquers will have this heritage or this inheritance. And I will be his God and he will be my son. The one who conquers or the one who overcomes. Well, who is that? First John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. It says, for everyone who has been born of God, guess what? Overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So we're going to inherit all these things. That's just fantastic. It's incredible. How long will it last? Hebrews 9.15. We looked at this. Um, I think we looked at this one or maybe another one on Wednesday night. It says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Our inheritance is eternal. That's how long. Um, that's just incredible to me. 
And we, we have a guarantee because God, this is God's word and it is true. But if you want a guarantee, guess what? God even gave you a guarantee. He says so in his word in Ephesians chapter 1. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of faith, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, in other words, you had to do something there, you had to put your faith in him, you were sealed, it says, with the promised Holy Spirit. What's that mean? Verse 14, Ephesians 1 tells us, who is the, the Holy Spirit is the what? Guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That word guarantee is the word erabon. It means engagement ring. It means promise. A promise that will be kept. It's a down payment. I mean, isn't that neat that God gave us that? He didn't have to, but he did. As a deposit, he gave us something to look forward to, an inheritance that's incorrupted, undefiled, will never fade away, guaranteed in heaven. And by the way, if you you think I'm holding out on you, here's the Holy Spirit just to tide you through till you get it. See, that's the inheritance that encompasses eternal life. And that's what we need to understand. We need to understand these, these kind of things. Because sometimes they just kind of bounce off our head. And that's what Paul was praying in Ephesians 1. He was saying, hey, God, open their eyes to this truth. Help them understand this. I mean, it has a big, a big, uh, makes a big difference in your spiritual life when you understand things like this. And you say, well, I'd like to understand more about this inheritance. How do I do it? When Acts chapter 20, verse 32, it tells us, it says, and now I commend you to God. This is Jesus kind of saying, hey, I'm going to be out of here, but I'm, going to, I'm commending you to God. And, and then he says this, and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you, look at what it says, the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So how do you understand more about this inheritance? Well, you get into the the word of his grace. You get into the Bible. You understand what it has to say about your position in Christ. The more you understand your position in Christ, the more you understand the God who saved you, the more you're going to understand about this inheritance. And that's when we get to say, thank you, God, for everything that you've given to us. Well, secondly, not only are we thankful for our inheritance, but, and we'll cover these last two quickly here, deliverance. It says in verse 13, for he delivered us from the domain of darkness. A second cause for thanksgiving that really matters is, put it this way, our spiritual liberation. (laughs) The idea that God delivered us. Ruomai is the original language, and it means to draw to oneself, or you could say to rescue. It literally means to draw to oneself. It has the idea of someone, maybe you're, you're, you're drowning in a pool, and you need to be rescued. What does a lifeguard do? Jumps in the water, and he draws you to himself, grabs a hold of you. 
saves you. And the idea is that God actually took us from Satan to himself. He took us out of the clutches of Satan by his grace through Christ to himself. What's interesting, in the original language, it's in the aorist tense. The aorist tense. It, what it means is that there's a point of time in that it happens. It's a one-time event. It happened all at one time. Our deliverance. Well, when? At the new birth. When you place your faith in Christ. When you cried out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. And God quickened your heart and your mind to understand by his mercy and grace. You know, there's no progression in our deliverance. We aren't delivered over a period of time. You know, a lot of the word of faith people, they'll have a deliverance ministry or whatever. And, you know, it sounds good. It's really theologically incorrect. It's bad wording. Because we're already delivered. There's nothing else to be delivered from. If you've been delivered from the clutches of Satan and sin, there's nothing else. You've been rescued from the power of darkness. The word power there really has the the idea of the, the, the jurisdiction of darkness. The domain of darkness. The authority of darkness is the idea. Jesus uses this word in Luke 22, verse 52 to 53. He says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders, they all came out to arrest him. Remember in the garden? And Judas was going to kiss him on the cheek and they were going to arrest him. And they brought all these temple guards and everything. And he says, have you come out against a robber? <laughs> this is Jesus speaking. With swords and clubs? And then he says, was I not with you day after day in the temple? I didn't pose any threat to you there. You did not lay hands on me, he says in verse 53. But this is your hour. And the power of darkness is what he says. That's the domain of darkness. He used the very same term that Paul used here in Colossians chapter 1. Well, what does it mean? He, he was speaking here of this supernatural forces that were marshaled against him by Satan himself. I mean, to sum it up, the jurisdiction or, or the domain of darkness is basically the domain of Satan himself. And in Luke chapter 22, that when he was arrested in the death of Christ on the cross, Satan thought, wow, I won. I won. The dark power had its brief moment, but it proved to be very brief. <laughs> and what happens? <laughs> he lost in total defeat, Right? Because on the third day, what happened to Christ? He was risen from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And so not only did the power of darkness find itself unable to capture Jesus, 
But in his death, he rescued out of the clutches of the power of Satan himself all who were his, which would include all those who put their faith or trust in Christ, those who are saved. And once you're rescued by Christ himself, you don't need to fear the enemy. You do not need to fear the enemy. 1 John 4, 4 says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is what? Is greater than he who is in the world. We don't need to be worried that somehow Satan is going to get an upper hand on us. We're protected by the blood of Christ. We're completely delivered from his domain of darkness. In Romans 16, Paul says in verse 20, the peace of God will soon crush Satan under your feet. It says that soon Satan will be under our feet. Satan was crushed, and we were rescued from the power of darkness. I mean, what, what hope did we have? We had no hope. We were locked into the system of Satan. We were on our way to hell with no hope whatsoever. But God in his grace saved us, gave us an inheritance, delivered us from the domain of darkness. And it doesn't stop there because it also tells us, he says we were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, it says we were delivered from the wrath to come. So some people think, well, is the end of the world coming soon? Well, it may be, but I'm not going to be fearful of it. I have no concern of it. God will watch over me. I mean, my theology says that we punch out of here before the tribulation begins. Or Galatians chapter 1, verse 4 says we are delivered from the world. The world that we inherit, we're delivered from it. Or in Luke chapter 1, verse 74, remember Zacchaeus said this, we are delivered from enemies. So if you think about what God, God delivers us from, salvation is deliverance. We're delivered from sin, we're delivered from his wrath, we're delivered from the world, we're delivered from our enemies. And we're delivered from the domain of darkness. That should be cause for thanksgiving, I would say. And it's all taken place. It's not conditional. It's not saying, Jesus isn't up there saying, well, you know, if you don't live the Christian life good, then I'm not going to deliver you from nothing. <laughs> it's already done. It's in the past. It's complete. Jesus showed that he had power to go into the kingdom of darkness. The strong man's house, it's called. And to bind the strong man who is Satan and his demonic forces and rescue the prisoners who were held there. By virtue of what Jesus possesses as God, he has that kind of power. It is his power that allows him to deliver us from the domain of darkness. It's the perfect righteousness that Christ possesses that allows him to say, you know what, you don't have any righteousness, I'm going to give you mine. And requalify us. 
It is his death for sin that allows him to deliver us from sin and from judgment. I mean, everything he is, everything he did fits into our deliverance. So we've been requalified or reclassified. We've gone from being imprisoned in the domain of darkness, the realm of Satan, to be transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. We have a new king that reigns over us, Jesus Christ. We have a new king in us via the Holy Spirit. See, and we can claim that deliverance is part of our salvation. I pray you're thankful for your inheritance and your deliverance. But there's one last thing, and this is important, transference. Look at what it says at the end of verse 13. It says, not only did he deliver us from the domain of darkness. I mean, that would be one thing, right? Get a fresh start, you know. But it says that he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. See, he continues this blessing. That word transfer means to remove or change. Remove or change. He literally moved us from the domain of darkness and put us into the realm or the the kingdom of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're in Christ. And Christ is what? In us. (laughs) And you say, well, can anybody ever change that? Not according to Romans chapter 8. Paul says, who shall separate us? What shall separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus? The answer, quickly, is nothing. Absolutely nothing. So we've been delivered into the Son of God's love, the Lord Jesus Christ, His kingdom, His reign. He is our King and our authority. And he also says here, because of that, because we've not only been delivered, but we've been transferred into his kingdom, we have certain benefits. What are those benefits? We have redemption. We have redemption. And you notice there that it literally, it's in the Greek, we have been transferred. It's a done deal. It's not like we have one big toe over there stuck in the domain of darkness anymore. No, he transferred us completely. And that's what we have to be thankful for. I mean, yeah, it can be a little hard because, you know what, our king, even though we're in his kingdom... It's kind of like he's, well, he's in heaven, right? But you remember when David was king and he was being chased and he was chased all over the place by Absalom? He was no less the king, even though he was cowering in the wilderness. He was still king. And even though the world has chased Jesus Christ and tried to dethrone him as king and rebel against him, guess what? He's still king. And the Bible says that one day, what? Every tongue will confess. 
Every tongue. Those that are going to heaven and those that are going to hell. They'll understand completely. And I think personally that's part of hell. Part of the judgment of hell is being there knowing, wow, that was right. And no way to change it for all eternity. Trust me, you don't want to be in that position, right? We live in a day in the age of grace, the church age, where God is saying, hey, you know what? You need to turn from your sin. You need to turn to the Savior. You need to repent. You need to change your mind about who he is. You need to trust him for your salvation. You need to trust him to give you that inheritance, the deliverance, and the transference. Because when you understand those things, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. You get the idea? He's kind of making a point here. It's a little important. Charged us what, Paul? That you walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What's he saying? He said, you you know, if you're a Christian and you're following Christ as your Lord and Master, he's your king, then you better be living as such. Don't you dare name the name of Christ and then go live like the devil. That's not a good situation. Even in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, he says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. See, when we live our Christian lives outside of these four walls, we are ambassadors of the king. We're Christ's ambassadors. We want to make sure that people notice a difference in us. We're members of his kingdom. We want people to understand that he is our Lord. We're going to live a little differently than people of the world who are not bowing their knee to Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 12, just closing, it says in verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful. Let us be grateful to God for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Yeah, this world's going to get shaken. It's going to fall apart one day. Guess what? Our kingdom isn't. And he says, And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, based on the fact that he saved us into that kingdom with reverence in all. And then he says this in verse 29 of Hebrews 12. He says, for our God is a consuming fire. What kind of kingdom do we have? We have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It cannot be moved. We have an inheritance, a deliverance, a transference. All gifts of God to us for which... We should be thankful, and we should be able to praise the Lord, which we will do for all eternity. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the things that we can be thankful for, things that really matter, like our salvation and our deliverance and the new kingdom that you ushered us into and our inheritance. Lord, help us to understand that today is all that we have, today. 24 hours. And today is all we need because today is all we can handle. We don't need to worry about what's coming down the pike. We don't need to worry about what's coming around the corner. 
Lord, you've called us to trust you step by faith, step by step. Your, your, your word is a light onto our path. It has the idea step by step. It's showing us where to go. It doesn't give us the big picture of everything. But Lord, we thank you for the complete picture of salvation that you've given to us through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray this morning if there's any here who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ and in Christ alone, Lord, that they would cry out to you even now in the quietness of this moment. For those watching live stream or on the app, Lord, I pray that they would search their heart. And Father, that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I'm, I want to follow you because I know you and you alone are the truth. You are the way. Give me that faith to believe in you. That's a prayer that God will answer when it's prayed from a sincere heart. Father, as believers, I ask that when we leave here that we would understand that We should be thankful. Even in a world of chaos, we should be thankful because we know that your purpose and your plan will be carried out. It may not be carried out exactly how we want, but Lord, we put our lives in your hands each and every day. And so, Father, help us not to fight against your will or your plan. And yet, Lord, we do pray for calm. We do pray that we would see you work in incredible ways, that only you could do a work that you could do. And Father, that when it seems hopeless, that's when our hope needs to be in you. And Father, we ask that you would help us each and every day when we interact with people to allow some of that hope that we have as believers to spill out onto them. Father, that we'd be able to share the gospel of Christ and that we would be able to see people come to know you and understand for the first time that Christ can and is willing to save them. But they need to trust him. Father, we thank you for our time. Pray for this week that you would keep us safe that we would have a blessed time of Thanksgiving on Thursday. And we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.